As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the American League MVP race as much as we are. Hope you're having a great week as well. This is the mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. As always, I'm Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal. Ken, how are you doing this week? Doing well, Tim. You? Uh, I am good, and we were just talking about the fact that you actually didn't have a Fox game this weekend, which is cool. That I did, I I joke that you were off. Obviously, you weren't off. You're you're always working, but not to have a game is is kind of neat. So uh, I'm glad you got to enjoy it a little bit. Um, looking back to last week, something you wanted to talk to here at the top before we get to the mailbag um, is the Tony Larusa story or your letter to Tony Larusa, the way you wrote it. Uh, I checked out the comments section uh, on the Athletic, which are always interesting i feel like it's it's generally a a great comment section compared to other places uh but it ran the gamut on this story uh strong opinions in all directions and i know you wanted to reference it so obviously in the wake of what i wrote about la russa there was a lot of talk and some of the talk surprised me so in this particular case i am eager to explain why i went about it the way i did now if you have noticed in the past, I never talk about reporting process, about how I go about getting a story, sources, identifying sources, none of that. I never want to talk about that. That's private. That's stuff that I will not share. And for instance, with the Astros story, Evan Drellick and I were often asked, hey, who are your sources? How did you get that? No, 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 no. It's going to be a little bit in Evan's book that's coming out, but for the most part, We don't talk about those kinds of things. At least I don't. I don't think it's proper. When I write an opinion piece, which is what this was, different story. And in this case, because different people took it differently, Tim, I'm more than happy to explain why I went about it the way I did. And as you said, some people thought it was great. And some people said, whoa, whoa, who are you to write this? The first thing to understand is that In addition to news stories and features and analysis type pieces, I do write opinion columns. And those of you who have followed me over the years know that. It's pretty obvious 
We don't identify which stories are opinion stories and which ones aren't, but you guys are savvy enough, you read enough, you know me well enough, I think, to know which ones are which. This one was clearly an opinion piece. And I chose to write it the way I did because I did not want it to come off as this hot take, screaming, Tony, you've got to go type of column. I've covered LaRusa for too long, 35 years or so. I have incredible respect for what he has accomplished in his career. And I knew what I would be writing was tough and was, in the eyes of some, I'm sure, harsh. But at the same time, I didn't want it to come off in some disrespectful tone. So that's why I chose the open letter style, which I don't know that it is something I've even ever used before. And it's something you'll see others try from time to time, sometimes with greater effect than others. And maybe this one landed right. Maybe it landed wrong in your opinion. But that is why I took it that way, because I wanted to make a lot of points kind of defending him. Now, I could have done it in a standard column format, but I just felt this was a more restrained form of doing that. Now, I had a lot of information in there that I collected throughout the season. And in the past couple of weeks, we had one trip to Chicago with Fox recently. And I included a lot of that information in there because to me, it's important. And it's important for people to understand just what has gone on with the White Sox and the difference that Miguel Cairo has made since taking over as manager. It's pretty evident. And the main point, or one of the main points of the article, is that, in my opinion at least, this never should have gone the way it did in the first place. Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, while loyalty is perhaps his strongest suit, best quality, his loyalty to Larusa, his desire to bring him back after firing him all those years ago, compromised their competitive window. It compromised their front office, which might not have wanted Larusa as their first choice ultimately has an effect on the players as it has an effect on the fans. Not good. So that was the timing of it. I just felt it was time. And clearly, by the time I wrote it, his health no longer was in danger. He was attending games again. So I felt comfortable from that perspective. Now, as I said earlier, different stories land with people in different ways. And I do understand people who might say, hey, this was over the line. And frankly, I don't really like it writing that people should be fired or people should retire or a player should step down or step aside, anything like that. In fact, I generally do not write the retirement aspect. I do not say to players in print, hey, it's time. Your day is done. Your career is over. It's a player's choice. This one, though, strikes me as a little bit different. And it struck me as different because of the transition that occurred and the difference in the team's play once LaRusa was not in the picture. So, to sum it all up, that is why I wrote it the way I did. And when you write opinions, you fully recognize that some of them are going to be proven correct, some of them are going to be proven incorrect, and some of them will kind of be neither here nor there. Now, we'll see where this one lands, but I can point to one earlier in the season that clearly was incorrect. And that's when I wrote that the Phillies, if they fired Joe Girardi, that nothing would change. Clearly, everything has changed. And I'll be addressing that this week in print, as Phillies fans have requested virtually all season. Fair enough. That is what you do when you write opinions. And in my view, 
This is part of my job, to point out when things are amiss, to show readers a different side, to explain that, hey, maybe this isn't okay with regard to any particular situation. That's part of it. It's often uncomfortable for me. It's probably the worst part of the job, but I'm going to continue doing it. I'm going to hit sometimes. I'm going to miss. And that really is my explanation for all that went on with that particular story. It was one that was difficult to write. It was one I was kind of uneasy about writing, but it was one I also felt had a lot that needed to be said. I think one of the key things you said there was how informed it is, right? You you have so much information that you're coming from with this stuff that maybe people don't necessarily understand. And also the fact that you have a relationship with Tony La Russa that has gone many, many years. And you said it right here that how much you respect him uh, as a manager in his career. So all of that, I think, goes into this. And I think some people, when they read a story like this from you, don't necessarily think about those things. It's true. And... I don't expect them to. That's not their job. People aren't responsible or obligated to read things a certain way. And again, people will read things differently. That is the beauty of the world. But that's my explanation. And that's why I felt it important, even on this podcast, to talk about it a little bit. Because I don't know that everyone understood where I was coming from. And maybe you can say, well, Ken, if people didn't understand where you were coming from, you obviously missed. I don't know about that. But I wanted to give a little bit more of an explanation. All right. And with that, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week, call us, 646-543-7072. Or if you don't want to do that, you can also email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Um, the big stories coming out in the last week off the field, obviously rule changes. We have some stuff on that. And the minor leaguers uh, getting a union, joining the union. The first question comes from Gary. He says, I wanted to ask about the new minor league players union and how this might work. Presumably, the minor leagues will be negotiating on a different schedule and with different goals than the major league players. So let's say the minor leagues go on strike. Does that mean that a striking minor leaguer can't be called up to the parent team? And if he does leave the picket line to join the major league club, Will that make him a scab, even though both leagues are the same union? Likewise, if there is a strike and a struggling player on the major league team is sent down, he is now being sent down to a place where he won't be able to play. This also might make needing to send an injured player out for a rehab assignment a real challenge. In a way, even though both leagues will be in the same union, either one choosing to strike could hurt players on the other side. I guess the first question here, Ken, before you get into all of that is, Will they negotiate at the same time? First of all, these are great questions by Gary Tim, and I'll answer each of them, and in starting with yours. They will not negotiate at the same time, necessarily. These will be two different and separate collective bargaining agreements. Major League Baseball just reached a collective bargaining agreement with its players that will last for five years. I assume that now with the minor leaguers unionizing, their new CBA or initial CBA will be reached sometime before that. So different schedules and... All of these questions that Gary raised are questions that are going to come up in the future. Now, let's go one by one and try to answer them as best as I can. I did talk to someone from the union after I got this question in trying to get some answers and trying to explain this as well as we possibly can. First of all, a minor leaguer on strike going up to the majors. Would that person be a scab? No, 
A scab is someone who replaces a player, a player on strike. The major leaguers would not be on strike. If a player gets called up, he can play. That's my understanding of it. The real question, or maybe the better question, is going the other way. Now, again, if you get promoted, you're not going up as a replacement player. You're going up as a major leaguer. But if you get sent down to a minor league that is on strike, what happens? Well, then you're on strike. Simple as that. You can't cross the picket line. There is no picket line to cross, most likely, because I have a hard time believing that the minor leagues will have replacement games. Simply not enough players probably available to do that if, unless you go on the sandlot and start recruiting guys i don't see that happening so for a player on a rehab assignment it would be the same thing this would be a problem for teams i would imagine if the minor leagues were on strike and i'll get to the likelihood of the minor leagues ever going on strike in a second but if they did go on strike and you had a player who needed to go on a rehab assignment i assume instead you'd have to stage simulated games at the major league level to get that player back working again. It's not the same as competing in an actual competition. Max Scherzer, for instance, could have stayed with the Mets and done some simulated work, but he wanted to pitch in a minor league game, that actual competition, and that would be lost if the minor leagues were on strike and the major leagues were not. But that is the way I understand it. Now, the real question here maybe is, can minor leaguers go on strike at all considering that they don't have the leverage that major leaguers do. It's not the same kind of leverage withholding services as a minor leaguer as it is when you're Mike Trout, right? So that is something that we'll see develop in the future. And just because minor leaguers make not much money doesn't mean that they can't go on strike. Other industries in which employees do not make enough money in their minds go on strike kind of frequently. So that is really the question here in my view. But if, as long as you're not having replacement games in the minor leagues, which I don't expect, you're not going to have scabs. You're not going to have people taking jobs in that fashion. So that's how I see it. And it's going to be really interesting in the future, as I mentioned, if there is a lockout by the league of the minor leagues, as we saw with the major leagues, or if the minor leaguers choose to go on strike, how long could they hold together? It's a little bit of a different equation than with the major leaguers who have more of a war chest and all of that. Fascinating, and it certainly complicates something that was already extremely complicated. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck t-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great 
without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLB Show. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Uh, all right. Next question is also against about the union. It's a voicemail. What's going on, fellas? My name is Kyle. We've heard about these new rules, and we know that they are going into place next season. We also heard they didn't completely agree on all those rules. We also now know that the minor league players are going to be part of the uh, players union. They were able to unionize. So, and of course, I'm scrolling through social media, and I'm already seeing not just fans, but, you know, writers and people who cover the game start already talking about the next collective bargaining agreement. <sighs> Would you say this makes it more likely or less likely of a work stoppage? Also, how is this new CBA going? We haven't really heard much about it like we did last time when we were almost told out of the gate that there would be a work stoppage next time around. That's true, and that is what happened after the previous CBA. From the moment the ink was dry, and not even dry, agents were telling me this is a problem, it's no good, we're going to have problems going forward, etc. You did not hear the same kind of talk after this CBA was reached. There was some disappointment by some on the player side that they couldn't get earlier free agency or earlier salary arbitration. In the view of some, not all, some, it's more of a status quo agreement, even though there are some significant changes. The increases in the minimum wage, the pre-arbitration bonus pool, something that we've never seen before, the higher competitive balance tax thresholds. All of this is part of the agreement as well as a number of other things. And by and large, it's better for players, in my opinion. Is it what they wanted exactly? No. Does it advance them to some degree? Yes. Are further changes needed? Well, that's your question, and quite possibly the answer to that is yes as well. But we have to see how this plays out. A collective bargaining agreement is in some ways like a trade. You can't evaluate it right away, even though we did evaluate it right away at 16. You have to wait for the various mechanisms to go into effect. And we'll see how the pre-R bonus pool affects things for younger players, as well as the higher minimum salaries. I've already written about the idea that the creation of that pool doesn't really stop or hasn't to this point stopped players from taking those pre-arbitration extensions that sometimes are below market. So all of this has to play out. We'll see in time, but certainly the reaction to this agreement was not nearly as vehement in a negative way as the reaction to the last one. In part, I think that's because people were just happy it was over with. Yeah, let's get back to baseball. Uh, Chris has uh, thoughts on the, the rules. In regards to the new rules coming to MLB beginning next year, the shift, the pitch clock, pickoff limitations, all that stuff, do you foresee any of them beginning to trickle down into lower levels of baseball, college baseball, high school baseball, et cetera? Not sure, Chris. Remember that a lot of these rule changes grew out of experiments in the minor leagues. Virtually all of them did, actually. So we've seen it in the minor leagues. I imagine we'll see some of it take effect in other leagues as well, but I'm not sure. 
The clock is something that perhaps is exclusive to the majors, and maybe it will just kind of lead to a better pace as people watch games and act differently. It's a copycat world, right? And kids copy the major leaguers and act like the major leaguers. So maybe that is how it will be affected. But I have a hard time seeing how a Little League game with a 20-second pitch clock would work. And I don't even know that it's necessary. Little Leaguers don't dawdle like Major Leaguers do, which is why the pitch clock was necessary in the first place. But as far as shift restrictions, that I can see becoming more of a thing everywhere because you want your infielders, for instance, at the college level, to play that more athletic style that will be necessary when you cannot stack three infielders on one side of the bag. So I don't know that it will formally take effect. Maybe informally, colleges and other amateur-level teams will simply stop shifting as much as they do. It's a fair question, and it remains to be seen also whether the shift rules will stay in effect. Maybe they don't work. Maybe they don't work the way baseball intends and some other adjustment is needed. So again, it has to play out. I will say the reasoning for the rule changes in the majors, if you've watched college and high school baseball, don't necessarily exist to the extent. I mean, those games move pretty quickly. Yes. I think they're a lot more fun to watch in a lot of ways because of that. Uh, All right, next question comes from Cassie. I was wondering if you could answer a question. It's been on my mind. Aaron Judge has 20 more home runs than the rest of the league, and Ian Happ has said on his podcast that the ball is poop. Aaron Judge only hit 39 with a juiced ball. It seems like he is the only one who has hit more home runs this year, and those who were leaders last year have been down 10-plus home runs. So how has his production increased while everyone else has decreased? Has he changed his swing? Is it that he bet on himself and he's more motivated? What is it? Cassie, these are all interesting points that you raise. First of all, with regard to the ball, it seemed like it was dead or early. I don't know that that's been much of an issue since around May. Certainly haven't written about it as much because players haven't been complaining as much. The weather got warmer. Perhaps they did some things with the ball. Who knows? But it just hasn't been as much of an issue. The real question that you raise is, hey, how is Judge so much better than everybody else? And... That's something that in reading recent features on Judge by Lindsay Adler and Tom Verducci in Sports Illustrated, Lindsay, of course, writes for The Athletic, the bigger difference or the biggest difference seems to be that this is simply a player who is maturing as a hitter. He has refined his routine pregame. He's taken a bit of a less is more approach to his workload to help himself stay healthy. And His preparation is really good, the way he goes about batting practice and the way he just goes about everything. In addition to all that, he keeps a journal like a lot of players do or notebook, and he is someone who studies the game, studies the pitchers. And when you put all that together, the work ethic with the physical ability and the great makeup that he has, meaning his approach just mentally, it's a pretty good package. So that is the best explanation I can offer, I encourage you to read Lindsay's story and Tom's story as well because they give insight into the questions that you're asking. But this simply seems to be a player who is finding his peak, is finally putting together everything that he has worked on over the years and developed into becoming this amazing hitter. Now, one word while we're at it on the AL MVP race I don't know that I've said this exactly in these words before on the podcast, but 
To me, there is no wrong choice. If I had to vote, I would vote for Judge. My preference is the MVP comes from a contender. Judge plays for a contender, one that he has essentially kept afloat for quite some time now. Otani does not. But as I've said before, what Otani is doing is absolutely off the charts. And I mean crazy off the charts. Like, I can't even understand it in some ways, and most fans can't either. When you look at him, he's seventh in the majors in ERA. Better ERA than Max Fried, Zach Gowan, and Framber Valdez. He's eighth in OPS. Eighth in the majors. Same OPS as Manny Machado. This is all entering Sunday's play. Better than Jose Ramirez. Better than Rafael Devers, Xander Bogarts, Pete Alonso. Now, he doesn't have the volume with pitching that some of the others do. I get it. And even hitting. But, my goodness, what he's doing is absolutely incredible. He said Saturday night to reporters that he feels this season on balance is better than his last. I'm not comparing it to judges. Judges is historic. It's a different kind of historic. And it's great. All I'm saying is, in this world of polarization, where everything is black and white, maybe we can appreciate both guys and just say, wow, isn't it cool to have two guys this good in the MVP race? All right, next question comes from Eric. He says, I'd like to think of myself as an astute baseball fan, but I didn't realize how sneaky good the Texas Rangers infield looks. With the arrival of Josh Young, Nathaniel Lowe has found a landing spot at first, and of course, Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager. What are the next steps for this Texas Rangers team? Things seem to be in disarray for the Texas front office. How do they go forward and improve on an incredibly disappointing season? Pitching has to be top of mind, question. Who looks to be in line for the coaching job? The pitching is number one and number two and number three. I would say the front office is not in disarray. John Daniels was fired as president of baseball operations, but Chris Young already was in place as general manager. He simply will assume those duties. They'll probably hire at some point an assistant, but I was told this week that really the manager is the first priority when it comes to figuring out where they are going forward. They have to identify the manager that they want, hire the manager that they want, whether it's the interim Tony Beasley or someone from the outside. And then perhaps they will bring in some more veteran voices to their front office. But when it comes to the team on the field, clearly, as you say, they are in a pretty good spot from a position player standpoint. They've got pretty much every position set, but maybe left field. They've got some internal options there. They can maybe spend a little bit on offense if they want, but Offense is not the problem. They're good there. What they need is starting pitching. John Gray's in place. I'm going to assume for the sake of this discussion, they're going to re-sign Martin Perez. They want him. He wants to be back. This should not be a problem. But then they still need three. Now, maybe one of them can come from an internal group, Glenn Otto and Dane Dunning, those guys. And then the others, you'll go and get somebody from the outside, two people. Two pitchers from the outside could be from a trade, but those are very difficult to pull off for starting pitching. And it could be clearly from the free agent market where there are a number of quality pitchers available. Chris Young, a former pitcher himself, is going to need to identify which guys he thinks are best for this team, but they might not be far away from contention if they make the right choices. That's always the danger when you enter free agency Maybe you get the right guys. Maybe you get burned. They spent a lot last time around, and 
did pretty well. Like you said, that infield, the, the lineup looks pretty good. So we'll see if they can do it again on the other side. All right, next question is another voicemail. Hey, Ken, Dan Lyle, Fullerton. Love the show. Can't wait for it to come out every Monday morning. Um, big Angels fan. Been uh, since before 2002. Uh, went to Game 7 of the World Series. Incredible, most incredible sports thing I've ever done. And since then, obviously very disappointed. Love Trout and Otani. is so incredible to watch, but it's been so difficult with the ownership. Uh, I think a lot of fans believe it's the ownership. I know I sure do. Um, so can't imagine how happy we were when it was announced that they're going to sell the team. And I'm wondering if you've heard anything. I haven't heard anything in the news since it was announced. Um, maybe it's just going to be in the off season, but wondering if you know anything. Couple things there. One, it might take a while as ownership transitions often do. And initially, some people wrote the expectation is opening day 2023 for a new owner to at least be identified. I would imagine it could be sooner than that. Artie Moreno, from what I understand, when he makes a decision, he wants to act sooner rather than later, and he will want to accelerate this process. Now, might be out of his control. Remember, the Nationals are also for sale. Outside factors influence these things all the time. But I would not be surprised, let's say it that way, if at some point in the offseason, maybe late in the offseason, they've got their buyer. As for names, there have been several that have been reported in the media. Golden State, Warrior, Golden State Warriors owner Joe Lacob, he's one of them. He's a guy that a lot of people obviously think highly of. Rams owner Stan Kroenke, he was the runner-up for the Dodgers in 2012. The owner of the Los Angeles Times, Dr. Patrick Soon-Shang, he's another person who has had his name out there in the mix. And there are other possibilities. Maybe you get investment from Japan. Maybe other rich people in Southern California. There is a belief among many that the Angels could go for more than the Mets and the Mets went for $2.4 billion when Steve Cohen bought them just a couple of years back. So this is a very pivotal moment for the franchise, and I expect they're going to get somebody really wealthy in place, and then we'll see where the franchise goes from there. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. It'll be interesting. Uh, all right. Before we say goodbye, one last thing. Uh, on last week's show, we had a question about the new shift rules and how it could be impacted by the infield dirt. Ken, you and I were both under the belief, and why not, that all infields are created equal. But we got a text message from Jason Stark on Monday morning informing us that not only is that not the case, but that he was on the case <laughs> writing up a column this week all about the dirt. You got to check out that story if you haven't at The Athletic. Uh, Jason, as always, goes deep into it and, and figuring out how this could all play out. But Ken, in hindsight, I guess we could have, Jason was the guy we probably should have checked with ahead of time. <laughs> I always say this with regard to baseball, and I say it to everyone out there, whether you're just a casual fan, whether you're some loudmouth on Twitter or some other form of social media, whether you're just a Man or woman having a nice day, enjoying a game with a beer and a hot dog. Nobody knows everything about this sport. Maybe Jason does, but nobody else. And when Jason sent us that text saying, hey, not all infields are the same size, I was genuinely shocked. It is not even something, Tim, that ever crossed my mind that it might be different. So then Jason did kind of keep going on looking into this and we talked I believe it was Tuesday we were texting each other and he had some good information and he wondered you think this is a story we talk like this all the time among the writers at the athletic we collaborate a great deal I will have two or three writers read something I might write before I even submit it to the editors and we talk ideas like Jason and I were talking and I said Jason it might sound a little odd this story but it is your brand this is who you are. This is the kind of stuff you write about all the time. It is perfect. And people will find it fascinating because who would have ever thought that the dirt, the parameters of the dirt would be different in different parks. It never occurred to me, as we just said. And Jason, as he does always in such a great way, wrote this as entertaining as he could. And yet, while also giving the details and the information about how this is going to need to be regulated now and will be regulated and just giving insight into something most of us had never even thought about. So hats off to Jason, first of all, and I apologize to anyone who might have been listening last week and got the wrong info from us, but at least it's been corrected by the one, the only Jason Stark. And one little tidbit from his story to, to give you even more reason to, to look into it is the, the fascinating uh, details behind this while they are going to regulate it there could still be in the yes. future it looks like a two foot difference from one field to the other because of what they're calling groundskeeper error which is <laughs> <laughs> mind-boggling uh, uh yeah so uh it's it's going to be regulated in quotes but still a little different so something to, to keep an eye on as uh, we go forward in this crazy game we call baseball uh, if you want to get involved next week you can email us at tabaseballshow at gmail.com or call 
7072. Uh, coming up this week on the feed on Tuesday, the American League MVP debate. It's going on trial on Starkville. MLB.com's Mike Petriello has agreed to represent Shohei Otani. Jake Mintz from Cespedes Family Barbecue. He will represent Aaron Judge. They will lay out all the evidence. Jason and Doug will make a ruling with a couple of weeks still to go in the season. Uh, and then the rest of the week, roundtable Wednesday. Thursday is the 3-0 show. And then Friday, uh, DVR and Law returning. You can join The Athletic for a dollar a month, up to six months. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Uh, Ken, Thursday again this week, or are you back to Saturday? Thursday again. Yankees, Red Sox from Yankee Stadium on Fox. A game that we thought might matter uh, back at the beginning of the season, but it's always fun when the Yankees and Red Sox get together. And Aaron Judge will be playing in that game, so that should be fun as well. We'll talk to everybody again next week.